0: It's so good to be able to come together, and we're so thankful and appreciative of the presence of each and every individual. Our membership, the visitors have come our way. It's our strongest desire, in fact our only desire, to worship God this morning in a way that He would find acceptable, to do so in spirit and in truth. And I hope, if you have your Bible, that you'll leave it open to that text in Jeremiah chapter 8. But we'll be looking at a few other verses along the way as we wrestle with the question on the, bo- on the wall to my left. Were they ashamed? As I begin to move into the lesson this morning, there are a few thoughts on this next slide. A few thoughts that I will at least mention, and then I'll make a bit of a, of a statement that I hope that we'll consider with great strength and consideration as you think about this. We understand so easily and so powerfully that the God of heaven always does what's right. Whether it be His sentence concerning individuals, His declaration at the final judgment, whether it be the circumstances of immediate choice of judgment on nations in this world today, there are times we realize the hand of God as He works for the favor of or at times against the welfare of nations. Speaking of those things, Genesis 18.25 still declares, God always does what's right. Aren't we reminded in Daniel chapter 4, as you can see at the verses there on that slide, God rules in the kingdoms of men. I would use this lesson this morning to challenge each of us individually as well as for the welfare of our country. As we think about that which is the current state of affairs, the matters that we currently are racing with and dealing with, were they ashamed? It is with this in mind, you'll notice at the very bottom, Those nations that did the bidding of God and those that followed His way, they seemingly were so marvelously blessed by the very hand of God and how bountiful it was. But those that chose to refuse and those that chose to rebel and those that chose to elevate themselves above His will, they found themselves destroyed, often as, shall we say, captives to a foreign power. Many of us perhaps remember Brother Marvin Harrison, or rather uh, Marvin Huddleston, as he would attend on our Sunday evening services, some some uh, while his health permitted, I made a statement in a sermon one time, and it always seemingly was something that he found interesting to bring to my attention. I said that the pulpit is not a place for politics, and I still stand behind that. But he always challenged and had a little fun with me about that comment. But it is true, isn't it? that the things that you and I consider and believe so strongly about the Bible, if it is the way of God and if it bears on political considerations, then we must always side with God. We must always side with that which is His truth. This lesson this morning is a bit of a reflection of the current state of affairs, not only in our land, but in some cases around the world. But it is a matter that perhaps we should come to with the following slide. I would ask you to ponder at least for a moment the following. Anxious Israel. When you and I read through the pages of the Old Testament, we encounter a nation of people. They were known as Israelites and they were the nation of Israel. Later they were divided in that there was a southern kingdom of Judah, a northern kingdom of Israel, but they had such an incredibly bright start. God brought them out of Egyptian bondage. As they came out on that occasion, they were not the militarily strongest people on earth. Egypt was far stronger than they were, but yet Egypt was no match for Israel because God was with her. And furthermore, we appreciate so easily that God watched over them through years of wilderness wandering, bringing them finally to a land flowing with milk and honey. As they entered into that land, they conquered it and ultimately divided it amongst themselves, And to this day, of course, the nation of Israel still exists in that part of the world. When we think about the consideration of that land, I would ask you to notice what God gave them. He gave them not only their religious instruction. He gave them a fertile land in which to dwell. He gave them laws to recognize their civil behavior one with the other. He gave them every aspect of existence. He gave them hope. He gave them a promise for the future. He gave them the assurance that He would always watch over them. When God gave them all those things, you may then appreciate that in return, He demanded their obedience. He demanded their consideration to every law He had given them. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse number 40 highlights God's expectation with the corresponding sweetness of the reward. It is in that regard you might then reflect on that text that was read just a moment ago. In Jeremiah 8, verse number 12, we reach a point in Old Testament history where God abundantly asked the question, were they ashamed at the abominations they had committed? Here were individuals who were blessed to have the provision and the instructional laws of God, and now they had abominably disobeyed Him. They engaged in activities that were not only ungodly, they were unhealthy for themselves and for the land at large. And God asked the question, were they ashamed? The people of Israel should have had red faces because of the blushing that ought to have been characteristic of their behavior. And God says they weren't ashamed. They didn't at least consider anything unconsiderate about what they were doing. They ought to have been blushing. They ought to have been ashamed. They ought to have been disgraced to show their face before the presence of the God of heaven, and yet they weren't ashamed. When we think about that consideration, or at least that point in Old Testament history, doesn't it bring us to at least think about the way that slide ends? They had been blessed with sometimes some great leaders like Moses, Joshua, David, and some others. But they also, of course, had to recognize that they had met their crises on many occasions, and God had promised that some more were going to come if if they didn't follow him. Did you notice that statement there in Jeremiah eight twelve? As long as again they chose to rebel, the future did not look bright. The future did not look very pleasant at all. We're going to look at a few more cases this morning, so I hope that if you have your Bible, you'll follow along with me. Let's start looking at some of their errors, some of what brought those abominable statements to them. And let us ask about the statement that might apply to our nation today. Remember, God called them abominable. They had made some choices to approve some things and sanction some things that God declared was not wholesome and was not right. They chose to pursue it anyway. And with that, why don't we come to our first one. Homosexuality is a sin that is by no means new. We read about it in the ancient era. One can read of it at length in the ancient Roman Empire. Go back even much further, earlier in history than that. Even in the far distant recesses of the ancient past, it was an activity to which certain members of the human family turned their attention. We read about it first as far back as the opening book in all of the Bible, Genesis, the 18th and 19th chapters. It is with that, though, that we recognize, given that this behavior is nothing new, We have a whole set of scriptures that help us appreciate what has always been God's perspective on this. You and I know today there is an ongoing, and has been for some time, but an ongoing and open discussion, debate if you please, about the rights of homosexual marriage. The considerations by which the society ought to look upon it. Might I ask, as you think of it this way, I would ask that we use the Old Testament to paint a rather noteworthy picture. I would turn your attention to Genesis 15 verse 16 and note this. As far back as that passage, we notice that as God spoke to anxious Abraham, he gave to him the assurance that his descendants would enter into a land. And God would give it to them and they'd be blessed by inhabiting it but the fact is, God says right now there's already some people dwelling there. These Amorites that therein now dwell when the cup of their iniquity is full, they will be expunged or removed from that land, and your descendants Abraham will be blessed to, to go in and inhabit it. But did you notice that God says those that now are there, those that dwell there at that moment when the cup of their iniquity when their sins and their errors have reached a heightened consideration, and when it has reached the point that the pot is boiling over, I'm going to remove them from the land and give it to your seed. Race forward to Deuteronomy 9 verse 5. As God continued to speak, this time, of course, Abraham was long since dead. Hundreds of years have passed. However, Moses was told by God the fact that that same land, the one that God had promised to Abraham's seed earlier, there's soon to be the time that that cup's about full. References made on that occasion, you see, to the iniquities and the sins of those people, it had become even greater. You'll notice one more thing. What about some of the sins of which those people were guilty? Turn to Leviticus chapter 18. Let's let the Bible tell us what they were guilty of. What about the sins of those people? And let us listen as God identifies it. Leviticus 18, let's begin reading in verse 22. Thou shalt not lie with mankind as with womankind. It is abomination. Neither shalt thou lie with a beast to defile thyself therewith. Neither shall any woman stand before a beast to lie down thereto. It is confusion. Defile not ye yourselves in any of these things. For in all these the nations are defiled, which I cast out before you. Question. God there directly asserts that those individuals in that land, the ones he was about to cast out, were guilty of something. And it was for that reason, among other things, God cast them out. What was it? He's just described homosexuality among men and homosexuality among women as well as bestiality. Let's read further. Verse 25, the land is defiled, therefore I do visit the iniquity thereof upon it, and the land itself vomiteth out her inhabitants. Ye shall therefore keep my statutes and my judgments, and shall not commit any of these abominations, neither any of your own nation, nor any stranger that sojourneth among you. For all these abominations have the men of the land done, which were before you, and the land is defiled that the land spew you not out also when you defile it, as it spewed out the nations that were before you. We have clear biblical statement then from the Old Testament that among the sins of which the Amorites and the peoples of the ancient Canaanite land were guilty, and the very sins for which God punished them by by removal from that land, it was homosexual activity was among the list. With that in mind, you might then notice the significance you and i can see in such clear terms the amorite peoples they were being judged by the god of heaven and they were about to lose their land because of their choice to pursue homosexuality it was not an idle activity it was not surely in light of that you and i would notice the situation was extremely dire as you and i come down the stream of time until today Look at our nation. A few days ago, the Supreme Court of our land rendered a verdict. We've all heard so much about it. It has filled the newscasts, it has been in the papers, it's been the topic of frequent conversation. The nine justices of our Supreme Court agreed that the Fourteenth Amendment to our Constitution guarantees the legality of homosexual marriage. That was their conclusion. That 14th Amendment, by the way, simply asserts that no state will have any right to deprive any citizen of that state of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And our justices rendered that statement to be supportive of and condoning of homosexual marriage. Our land has followed along the very decree of what the Amorites did as a people, as a nation individuals who are supportive of that activity, we notice God did not look upon it with idleness in the ancient era. You can perhaps see that as you and I turn to the law beneath which we live today, name of the New Testament, how often has God in fact reminded us that those in Rome, those in Corinth, those in other first century churches that were beneath the law of Jesus Christ, they needed to recognize the following. I would ask you to notice the way that Romans 1 Verse 26 begins. This is Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 26. For this cause God gave them up unto vile affections. For even their women did change the natural use into that which is against nature. And likewise also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust one toward another. Men with men working that which is unseemly, and receiving in themselves that recompense of their error which was meet pausing at that point long enough to notice God has described in this case through the inspired apostle what is not difficult to understand men and women working that with with their own gender, their own sex which he calls an error, he calls it what's not natural, he calls it what's vile all three adjectives so strongly utilized to represent a particular choice in lifestyle may I ask you to note one other thing Sometimes those who openly, there are those, probably you've heard lately on the news, who'll say, I am Christian and I am gay. And they will openly say, with no blushing of the face at all, the Bible doesn't condemn this. Many times what is said is all the Bible condemns is a forcible homosexual relationship. It does nothing of the sort. Look at again at the language of verse 27. Likewise also the men leaving the natural use of the woman burned in their lust one toward another. This is as consensual as it can be. It's not that one forced the other one. They burned in their lust for each other, it says. Men with men working that which is unseemly and furthermore receiving, he says, that recompense of their error that was made. As Paul proceeds from that point onward, he describes other sins of which the Gentiles were guilty. But surely one of them was homosexuality. And you and I then appreciate as that particular sentence goes onward that this was by no means the only time in the New Testament that that was addressed. In 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9, 10, and 11, we have there another of those inspired listings whereby there are some individuals who Paul asserts will not inherit heaven. And how much more serious could something be than that? And among that list are things like fornicators and adulterers. Homosexuals is at the list. Read the last word in 1 Corinthians 6 verse 9. Homosexuals is in the list. You and I realize then as we consider the statement of our land and the current state in which we find ourselves, there apparently is a very strong and aggressive and progressive movement on the part of some to adore, endorse that which God hates because it's sinful it has always been so it was in Genesis 19 it was in Leviticus 18 it is in Romans chapter 1 it is in 1st Corinthians chapter 6 it is in 1st Timothy chapter 1. One by one as we think of all these though might we perhaps close that part of our lesson by saying it may be true that religion and politics aren't the best of discussional friends But for those who love the Lord and those who are committed to following the truth, regardless what the political sway at the moment may be, we must always side with the Word of God. And we mustn't give endorsement to those candidates that approve this, for we know what the sentence upon the nation is going to be. We understand the difficulties that are going to come. At this point, that political environment maybe leads us to close that slide and assert how useful and how vital it would be to pray for leaders that those who come into office at election times will have a proper view on statements like the one we've just discussed. But let's not end our point of consideration there. That isn't the only matter hanging over the balance of our nation and causing such dire considerations. What about this one? I tried to give thought to those topics that not only are timely, but also those that, of course, are very considerate about being in the Word of God itself. The topic of abortion. We know that's another topic. At least every four years, it occupies a noteworthy point in discussion as candidates mention it, some avoid it. But maybe I would ask you to notice it's as biblical as it can be. For look back into the days of the Old Testament. Again, was this a particular thing of which God had anything to say then? And could there be lessons in it that might be of great assistance to you and me even today? I would bring to your attention the time of Hezekiah and immediately thereafter in the days of the Old Testament. He was the 14th king of Judah. Hezekiah, there's much that might be said about him The Bible, in fact, on one occasion endorses him very highly as one who there had not been a king like him before him, and there would not be one like him after him. However, I mention that only to say this. The goodness that one might well have found in the life of Hezekiah, one should ask, what about his son that reigned after him? Following Hezekiah was a man named Manasseh. I have asked you to give consideration... Manasseh, you see, reigned for 55 long years as king. A man that was evil. He made evil choices. He led in a way that was fraught with ungodliness. It is with that in mind, let me invite you to ask, what were some of the things of which Manasseh was guilty and some of the things he supported in his reign? Let's turn over and read it. Turn with me, if you would, to 2 Kings chapter 21. And let's listen to what was said on that occasion again about what Manasseh chose to implement as king. 2 Kings 21, I'll begin reading in verse 11. Because Manasseh, king of Judah, hath done these abominations and hath done wickedly above all that the Amorites did. Did you note the language? Here was a king of Judah who did more wickedly than those Amorites that God had destroyed centuries earlier. Let's read on. Which were before him, and hath made Judah also to sin with his idols. Therefore, thus saith the Lord God of Israel, Behold, I am bringing such evil upon Jerusalem, and Judah, that whosoever heareth of it, both his ears shall tingle. And I will stretch over Jerusalem and the line of Samaria and the plummet of the house of Ahab, and I will wipe Jerusalem as a man wipeth a dish, wiping it and turning it upside down. And I will forsake the remnant of mine inheritance and deliver them into the hand of their enemies, and they shall become a prey and a spoil to all their enemies, because they have done that which was evil in my sight and have provoked me to anger since the day their fathers came forth out of Egypt even into this day. Now, reading through the end of verse 15, we notice God's sentence upon that ancient Jerusalem was severe because of what Manasseh had done. But look at the next verse, and let's see what Manasseh did. Moreover, Manasseh shed innocent blood very much, till he had filled Jerusalem from one end to the other, beside his sin wherewith he made Judah to sin, in doing that which was evil in the sight of the Lord." The only major sin besides idolatry listed in that verse, of which Manasseh was guilty, was shedding innocent blood. We're about to make an application. The text affirms God was going to judge Jerusalem for this. And the judgment was very soon coming. As you notice at the bottom of that, of greatest importance was the issue. Why don't we then make application to our day, to the day in which you and I now live? I would ask you to come to the top of that slide. Is there any blood more innocent than an unborn child? Notice Manasseh had shed innocent blood in great amount, filling Jerusalem with it in our day, in our day, in supposedly one of the most civilized nations on earth. What about abortion? I have tallied some numbers that are accurate as of 11 o'clock this morning. On the 12th day of July, 2015, here are the numbers. 50,286 abortions worldwide as of 11 o'clock this morning. Now, as you look further, look at the United States alone. Let's just pinpoint our nation for the moment. In our country. 578,392 abortions since January 1 of this year. Furthermore, that translates to almost 3,000 every day. And if you're looking even more fully, again, our United States Supreme Court in January of 1973 in a landmark case known as Roe v. Wade legitimized abortion. And since that time, In our land, there have been 58,071,765 abortions. Seems to me we've filled our land with it too. Innocent blood, that is. Now, if you think about the worldwide numbers, they're even far more staggering. Well into the billions of abortions. The point, though, is enough aside from the statistics. I would ask you to notice... One of the latest polls I've read state that upwards of 80% of Americans think that a woman should have the right to kill the baby within her. Even though they themselves might be somewhat not fully for it, they say it ought to be at least every person's right, and they endorse at least the opportunity of choosing. One more time, our interest is not what politics might say, but what does the Bible have to say? What does God teach concerning a subject like this one? I would have called your attention again, several verses, maybe starting in the 139th Psalm. As David recollected the very consideration by inspired prophecy there, he made note of the fact that even before he was born, God knew his fingers, knew everything about him. Now remember, this was before his mother gave actual physical birth to him, and yet God knew all of his members. God was very well aware of that which was within the womb of of David's mother Maybe it's in light of that, I would ask you to notice two very strong passages in Isaiah 49 and Jeremiah chapter 1. In those two verses, we read again about prophets, one Isaiah, one being Jeremiah. And did you notice, God specifically says, Jeremiah, before you were ever born, I called you to be a prophet. Identifying the fact when he was still in the womb of his mother, God had a plan for him. He was to, in fact, be a chosen one to carry forth the message of God's prophecies to a nation that needed it. I wonder among those 58 million babies that we've slaughtered in our land, how many great doctors or scientists or other engineers or good, wholesome fathers or mothers would there have been in the number? Only eternity could tell us. It's a shame. Were they ashamed? So many in our land seem not to be ashamed. Whether it be homosexuality, whether it be abortion, nobody or at least so few are blushing. That's not good. As you look furthermore near the bottom of that slide, you'll notice that as we come to the New Testament, it still teaches the same thing. That which is in the womb of a woman is not just a mass, it's not just a fetus, it's not just a bunch of tissue, it's a life. It's still fascinating that Jesus was called a baby after Mary gave birth to him, but Elizabeth said she was carrying the baby before he was born. It's still a baby, and it always will be. Maybe in light of that, we can close that slide by again noticing the times are troublesome, how earnestly we need to be involved in consideration of prayer for our leaders and helping to of course assist in putting into office those that would be remindful of the truth of god whether it be these two topics or yeah even this one what else might be a troublesome matter that is really aching at the foundation of our land i've simply entitled it moral confusion isn't it amazing that we are such an educated land our youngsters go to school many times thereafter to college, sometimes thereafter to professionals and graduate schools. We are the most educated land in the history of the world. And yet confusion reigns supreme. It makes no sense, does it? When you think about it from one perspective. Isn't it true that today, just as it was in ancient Israel, look over to Isaiah chapter 5 for just a moment. I would ask you to notice what a description was of that particular moment. Isaiah, the fifth chapter. We won't read, but perhaps one or two of the verses out of that chapter. It was a time when, again, Isaiah was called to prophesy to a people who were in the midst of such confusion. I would call to your attention this language. Beginning in verse number 20 of Isaiah chapter 5. Woe unto them that call evil good and good evil, that put darkness for light, and light for darkness, that put bitter for sweet, and sweet for bitter, woe unto them that are wise in their own eyes, and prudent in their own sight. Pausing at that point, you'll notice there was a state of affairs that was in fact current in ancient Israel. They took what was evil, and labeled it as good. And they took what was good, and labeled it as evil. Talk about confusion. Here was a state of affairs in which individuals lost their way in terms of moral fidelity. They, in fact, veered into iniquity and ungodliness. They took what was noble, upstanding, and right, and described it as unwholesome and filthy. And they took, on the other hand, what, in fact, was abominable, and elevated that and encouraged everybody to do it, or at least gave their state of approval for it. Moral confusion. Doesn't that seem like a fair description, drawing a parallel to our day? Despite all that education I mentioned a minute ago, and now we see the reason as to why, because it's education divorced from the truth of God. Whenever you make that separation, and youngsters are deprived of the only truth that can save their soul and lead to a happy citizenship here and hereafter, no wonder there's moral confusion. And it's not only in the children, it's in the adults as well, isn't it? Notice they called good bad and called bad good. They mixed up light and darkness. You may notice I stopped reading though, but there is one verse. What was God's sentence on this? Look at verse 24. Therefore, as the fire devoureth the stubble and the flame consumeth the chaff, so their root shall be as rottenness and their blossom shall go up as dust, because they have cast away the law of the Lord of hosts and despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. I can't think of a m- more appropriate verse in Isaiah descriptive of our day. They despise the word of God. They've elevated their own thinking above mine, and God says their actions are going to be as rottenness. It doesn't bode well for our land if it keeps like this. You see, they had moral confusion. What would have fixed it? No wonder the prophet Hosea, basically same time frame as Isaiah, said, My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. What knowledge? The knowledge of God. They needed to be thoroughly conversant with the things of God. And then moral confusion would be done away with. They'd know wrong from right. That still happened today. We need a wholesale return to the Word of God. Not only at the highest echelons of government, but in individuals' lives. So that we as a citizenry and as a people could return to what would not only make for propriety here, moral confusion would be gone. Everybody'd know the things are right and wrong. Maybe with all that in mind, why couldn't they blush? Because they didn't know the word of God. One last thing. And the lesson then will be yours. Were they ashamed? Another thing that prompted such difficulties in the ancient era was a sense of excessive welfare. I say that very quickly to say this. I think all of us wholeheartedly endorse the need for welfare for those who need it. When a person can't work, when a person is in very difficult circumstances, not due to his own making, we understand the Christian thing is to offer support and help but God has always been mindful of and very serious about providing assistance to those that are just lazy and those who just do, don't have the gumption to involve themselves in the duties and responsibilities bequeathed to them by God. No wonder we read in Second, Thess- Second Thessalonians 3 verse 10, right in the heart of the New Testament, if a man don't work, neither should he eat. Now, sometimes we as a nation have erred far too much on one side of that coin. A person who seemingly is well able is simply given a free ride through this life on all the welfare of others. That's just not a wholesome thing for them, quite frankly. That's the message of the Word of God. For you'll notice, God says, those who engage in that, they become busybodies and they are wasting of their time and they become inappropriately motivated not filling their time with wholesome, good activities. That is what happens, isn't it? That's what God's Word says. Again, verses 10 through 15 of 2 Thessalonians 3. Maybe in light of all those things, look at what happened in the words that God stated in Proverbs 6. Go to the ant, thou sluggard. He lays up properly for time of winter. He takes care of the duties and needfulness of that which is to come. And the message of that for all of us, for every person, is you be like it. You work, and you be dutiful, and you take care of that which is the obligation of God on that point. We as a nation, again, have erred in this regard, it would seem. And because of that, our financial economy is crumbling beneath the load, at least in part, of what's demanded of it. I would submit to you that the lesson maybe hasn't been very positive today, But it has been mindful that regardless of the political statements, you and I are always going to proclaim we ought to obey God rather than men, Acts 5.29. And as we do that, we're going to, in fact, make sure that we ourselves and our families are knowledgeable of the Bible so there won't be more confusion. Your children and mine will always know what's wrong and right. And they'll always understand that the channel through this life must be guided by the things of the Word of God. For if it's not, all of these things that are going to follow. Now that may well mean, if the people choose to follow it, that our nation's going to have hard times ahead. If that be true, you and I will still be faithful. You and I will still hold on to the things of God, for we know. We know that's the only thing that will carry us beyond this life. This morning, what about your life and mine? Are you a faithful follower of the Lord? If you are not, maybe it's because you've never become a Christian. Maybe you have allowed the thinking of the human family, perhaps not on these subjects, but maybe some others, to guide you into thinking that maybe everybody's okay. That's not so. If that were so, Jesus would never have had to die on the cross. But the fact is, He did die, and He did shed His blood, and He gave a plan of salvation, and those who, in fact, submit to it in obedience are the ones whose names is in the book of life, Romans 6, 17, as well as Hebrews 5, verses 8 and 9. If today we could be of assistance to you, perhaps as you make confession of the name of Christ and are baptized, we'd be honored to help you. If you have become a faithful Christian, but maybe today you have fallen astray, you have fallen in the world, why not come back to your first love? Let us pray for you and with you god's promise to forgive your sins upon your repentance and confession of them and we'd be happy to pray on your behalf but we'd ask you to let us know and do that at once while together we stand and while we sing